0: And I think that we should think of ourselves as, again, uh, as we did in 1776, as citizens with rights that are being impinged upon, seeking out political representation nationally, but in the states too, that looks to restore those rights.
1: Welcome back to The Kevin Roberts Show. I am really excited about today's conversation. I mean, as you know, I get excited about every conversation, but this is one that I've really been looking forward to for at least two reasons, but there are more than that. The, the first is, this is with a Heritage alumnus and a great leader of the conservative movement. So all of our Heritage alumni are very special to us. But the second is, while I love talking about policies, I love talking to elected officials, I am at my heart a recovering academic, and I love studying the history and philosophy of American conservatism. And I mean it when I say it. There are few, if any, people more important to that in this generation than my guest and one of my newer friends in life, Arthur Millick. Thanks for being here. Thank you very much. Those words are too kind for me, but I appreciate them. Well, they're heartfelt, and it is great to have you here. It's it's great to bump into you sometimes on the on the streets outside Heritage and look yes. forward to doing more of that much more intentionally. All of that to say, we're, we're going to get to Conservatism, this wonderful book that you and, and several other center-right thinkers have put together, and that will be the bulk of our conversation. But we always start with... Someone's story, how it is that they got to be doing what they're doing. And here you are now, working, leading the Center for the American Way of Life at the Claremont Institute, an organization we love at Heritage. And so you were you were nearby, both physically and kind of ideologically, and obviously as an alum. But what's what's your path? What was your path getting to the role, first year at Heritage, and then what you're doing now? But
0: let me put it just very simply in a couple of sentences. Uh, I came to DC uh, after studying graduate school, studying political philosophy. And at the time I was working on Plato and Machiavelli and I was very interested in war. And so I thought, well, I'm not going to get an academic job because that's not how things go for people like me today. And so I am going to see how America does war and think about it, learn about it, hopefully work with some of the best and brightest thinkers in it. Uh, And in a way that came true. Uh, But what I realized is, and this is, by the way, I should add, this is at the height of Iraq and Afghanistan. Uh, What I realized is that we don't do war in the way that I thought, which is to say there's no real statesmanship, uh, no real thinking about the nature of what we're doing in any deep way, the nature of the people that we're trying to transform as we were doing then, the possibility of those goals. It was really, Washington was run by bureaucracies, by a lot of not first-rate people. Um, There was a lot of money going around that I thought was just surreal. How a wealthy nation behaves in war that doesn't actually fight wars, you know? Uh, It hires mercenaries, it invests in all sorts of technologies. Um, And at the end of the day, I was very disillusioned with that world, especially because of the bean counting. And what I mean by that is that, you know, during this period, 2000, let's say, 10, uh, 2011, one of the biggest debates going on, as I remembered, I worked uh, in Congress then, was how many uh, Afghan national security forces should we have? Should it be 175,000? Should it be 224,000? And the truth is, none of that mattered because it all collapsed just as soon as we withdrew. So... And it was pretty clear then that that was going to happen. I also heard one story that will, I mean, to say amuse you is not quite the right tone because it's actually awful, but it is amusing. Um, I learned this from um, a man who is uh, still actually a government bureaucrat, and who I think is actually one of the most competent bureaucrats I've ever come across. He is the Cigar, which is the special investigator for Afghan reconstruction, he told the following story in testimony um, to Congress that uh, when we were rebuilding Afghanistan, uh, a contractor got $65 million to build a courthouse. Three quarters of the way through, they canceled the contract and the same contractor was hired to raise it for $35 million. This is almost unbelievable. I know that it's true. It's unbelievable. Now, don't quote me exactly on those numbers, but those are the approximate the numbers. real. And it's the story's real, and it's not the only one like it. And when I saw these things taking place, I just thought how utterly unserious the whole thing is. Um, and actually, right after that, I came to the Heritage Foundation, uh, where I changed direction and worked on American political thought um, and spent six very happy years here. Well, thanks
1: for your service to America, to Heritage, and of course now, to Claremont, an institution that we we love and is very important to the past, present, and I would argue, future of American conservatism. And, and all of that is the focus of your book that which you edited, Up from Conservatism, Revitalizing the Right after a generation of decay for people who are watching and not just listening. There's the cover. And I'll let you talk about all of the wonderful co-authors, uh, people who who wrote chapters in this, and uh, well, I don't guess I can ask you about your favorite chapter, but what yes, I, please don't. But truly,
0: they are all very good. They, they are. Re- I really mean them. Every, every last one of them. Yeah,
1: I think so. And I'm just going to read. It happens to be the first few sentences of the introduction. Whole introduction. The whole book is great. This is what you write in your introduction. The goal of this volume is to correct the trajectory of the right after several generations of political losses, moral delusions, and intellectual errors. Only such a correlation can alter, if not the trajectory of the whole nation, then at least parts of it. That, I think, will resonate with everyone in the audience. It resonates with me for a lot of reasons regarding different policy areas. But in particular, at this moment, thinking about the example you offered from Afghanistan. When you were having that assessment, I was a young tenure-track history professor at a public university in the Southwest. And I was a die-in-the-wool neocon. And I have often, especially when I'm doing interviews about opposing Ukraine military aid, referred to myself as a recovering neocon. And one of the reasons that I'm recovering is because I had a similar kind of moment that, that you did that this whole project is duped us. Now I'm not suggesting one final point before getting to the question for you, that every person who's advocating for, Say more military aid to Ukraine is a, a neocon or somehow ill intention. What I'm saying is that the right must have an intellectually honest conversation with itself, and and we we can no longer play this game of saying that question's out of bounds, that policy position is out of bounds, and and this book, as as I reviewed it, is definitely a, a huge step in that direction of inviting that conversation. Is it that that, that is that conversation that motivated? all of you to come together to do this, or were there some other factors?
0: Let me just say, uh, I appreciate all of that. Let me just say a word about the book. The book is has a very simple concept behind it. And even though it's simple, my view is that it has not been done, uh, and it should be done, which is to say that uh, the book is divided by all of the policy issues that affect the nation, tech, immigration, foreign policy, demographics. Um, And each essay by each author analyzes where the right went wrong in the last generation, what the consequences of that have been, and where the right should be today, given those consequences. Uh, So I think that the problem is that the right does not like introspection. Uh, The right is allergic to introspection. Uh, and you you see the way in which it's allergic because it's always shooting for these silver bullet victories. We're one policy away from restoring the country. We're one election away from restoring the country. And that's not true. Uh, that's not how we lost so much ground through the left. The left didn't think about it that way. Um, and we will continue to lose ground uh, unless we have a moment of thinking through what are the real dynamics in the country? Uh, what assets do we own? What assets do the lef- does the left own? When you do a kind of, let's say, tally of what they own versus what we own, we don't come off well. Uh, and many of those things we lost, we gave up. I'll just give you one example uh, an example that I know you know. For the last generation, the right really sang the tune of, let's say, the Fortune 500s, corporate America, and gave them almost everything they wanted on immigration, on tax cuts, on a variety of things. And then that faction turned left, and the right ended up having absolutely no leverage over it, no desire, still befuddled by how this happened. Some still are. Absolutely, blames all the wrong things, you know, says it's some you know, HR manager. It's not that, it's laws, uh, it's political pressure, it's the power to humiliate, uh, you know, all of the things that the right let go of. And even still, as the right is losing ground, there has not been a moment, at least broadly speaking, of real clarity, of real thinking through why exactly did things turn out to be this way? Uh, and I don't mean an intellectual history we've done enough of those. There are plenty. There are plenty. That genre should be over for the right. Agreed. For 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 the foreseeable future. And it should be a political analysis of how assets were lost, how assets can be regained. That's the dynamic. That's what counts. And it ain't just about elections. Elections are... And oh, I, I should clarify that by saying that The problem of elections that the Trump administration proved, and I don't think that this is unique to Trump, this is going to go on forever, Uh, I should say for the foreseeable future, is that you can win elections. And then there's this massive state that will stymie, humiliate, leak, obstruct you. So winning an election is not nearly enough. You can actually win an election and lose ground at the same time for that reason. So we have to start thinking things differently. And that's what this book is, you know, hopes to do. I want to key on the very last point that you made, which is that we
1: can win an election and still lose ground. It's a leading question, just
0: fair warning. Does one come to mind? I mean, look, I I think that that is just perpetually the situation that the right is going to be in um, until it sobers up. And by sobering up, I mean specifically not living within the moral framework, <clears throat> pardon me, that the left has erected for it. The right absolutely lives in the moral framework. And that's how it used to be a generation ago, that in other words, the, the rough, very rough distribution of labor, labor was, we the right do the economics, and you the left do the moral high ground, and you own that and we do this. And it was done on this tacit bet that so long as we preserve free markets, we can preserve political liberty. The truth is uh, not the the case. Uh, The truth is that you can actually have free-ish markets and some kind of oligarchy that combines with an intel state and an administrative state and the press that wears down every other freedom except that one. Uh, And that's Part of the dynamic that I think we live in today uh but that's not even the end of it that's the beginning of it that's we're in a transitional period doesn't it's not clear which way which direction the nation's going to go in but that's the the right forced that situation onto us by holding on to that right as uh, economic liberty as the core central right that would fight off tyranny and it turned out to just not be not be true, not fully true anyways.
1: Yeah, I appreciate the response because it isn't a, a single election. It, it's much worse than that. It's it's a mindset that we on the right have. And I'll, I'll just say I myself sometimes fall into this trap that if we can, if we can just win this next cycle and every election is important by definition, of course. then not that I think that's a silver bullet, but it's certainly a huge step in the right direction of beginning to take back the country. But your point is not only would we have to win a string of elections, we actually have to have the mindset that we use the, the levers of power. In fact, I'm going to read again a little bit longer section. This is also your introduction. And then I'm going to stop quoting you, too. No, no, that's okay. Oh, you kind of like that.
0: No, it just it helped it, me remember. You know, I wrote it a year ago. Yeah, this it's whenever
1: we, we have these these conversations over books with, that our guests have written, it's, it's just an act of charity to remind you if you wrote many <laughs> months ago.
0: Maybe I disagree with it
1: now. Hope not. I don't think just kidding. No, this is is really good prose. You are right. in this regard, the establishment right seems to have tacitly accepted its subordinate position in America. We do the economic policy, as you just said, while the left governs the culture, controls the moral consensus, and holds the, the levers of real power. As a result, you continue, the right could do nothing about the changing cultural norms but complain or go along. The right could not even prevent its core constituency, Corporate interests from going left, and to add on to this point, you right, nor could it protect its largest electoral bloc, southern whites and evangelical Christians, from being increasingly dominated by, dominated by, and assimilated into leftist morality. That is what we are living through,
0: and we still haven't found on the on the right our roadmap out of that. No, we have not. We have not. Uh, but uh, I, I actually. You know, there's a lot of pessimism on the right uh, and a lot of, you know, this internet word being blackpilled. I don't like that word, uh, partly because- Which is to be hopeless about the future. Hopeless about the future. Uh, And I don't like that word because it gives people this sense of uh, intellectual achievement. Namely, I've seen the future with total clarity and I've earned my pessimism. And that's just not the case. Uh, one never knows how things will break, uh, what direction things will go in. And when you, uh, when you take on that repose, you are also giving up, but giving up with dignity. You know, I give up based on knowledge, not based on fear or something like that. Um, I don't think that's good. I think that there's a lot of strength still left in the country and a lot of fight still left, uh, in the right, but it has to recalibrate itself. Uh, just to return to elections for a moment you know this is this is something that should be of major concern for the conservative movement and especially its donor class which is to say uh, my view is that uh, it's especially the donor class that puts great hopes in elections and I think that that is understandable. We should not be losing elections, sh- true, but it operates in our minds as a silver bullet. We get in there, we really change things. And as I said before, that may or may not be possible uh, in the way that we imagine. There needs to be a lot more building between elections. And um, you know, we, we are always hesitant to learn from the left, but in many ways we should. And one example of that is George Soros. I mean, you shouldn't, the right should not, as it tends to, you know, just make him into a demon. Um, When you make somebody into a demon, you then no longer have to analyze what is taking place in the thinking. And he's a very talented person. He's an extremely talented person that has done a great deal with his money. Uh, And that means partly distributing the money in experimental ways, using the money to basically what he and others, it's not just him, have done to prop up a class of activists that have overall been extraordinarily successful. In a sense, he has a lot to be proud of. Uh, Our thinking should be more directed in that way, Uh, especially on the level of the states as well. Uh, I think that the states are really the place where the right can oppose the regime in which we live, by the way, I should clarify this, you know, this word has been thrown around more and more lately, and I don't know, it's good and bad, but it comes from Aristotle, but I don't even want to talk about Aristotle. What it, what it actually means in our context is that um, there is a kind of hostile occupier. You know, we used to use this word, you know, in the aughts, Saddam's regime. And when we said that, we implied, well, Saddam's operating apparatus, his governing... Uh, structure is separate from Iraq itself. And that I think is actually a fitting way to think about our situation, But there is a ruling regime who has its own interests that are very often against the country. Uh, anyways, the States I think are the place that you can actually oppose a lot of this. Um, and that's where our donor class should be thinking. That's where our political class should be thinking. I tell a lot of young people that, you know, you shouldn't come to DC you should go to your state and become the most important person in your state. Uh, there's a huge amount of power and opportunity there. So it makes me think about
1: Project 2025, and I'll, I'll make this really brief because the point is not to to interrupt this, this really good conversation with, with a plug, although it is a bit of a plug. Project 2025, which you're part of, is a conservative movement's presidential transition project that, in addition to policies and executive orders, most importantly, is focused on attracting several thousand people hopefully most of them from outside dc to dc the point of mentioning that is to respond to your excellent comment about fighting the hostile occupier fighting the regime in dc by investing more time and resources and talent in states this is the point i've been asked in the last few months well, what happens if we don't win the election of 2024 which we may not we very well agree not What happens to the investment that Heritage and other groups have made in Project 2025? Well, two things. Not only will it become Project 2029, we have to continue the project of fighting back. But equally importantly, perhaps more importantly, we need to expand it to state capitals. Because, I mean, I know especially from my time in Austin, but even my few years in Wyoming combating the legislature there, on an issue. And there's a deep state, even in Cheyenne, Wyoming. So if, if, if an administrative state can run roughshod over self-governance in a state like that, it's everywhere. So that's a really good, uh, particular project for us to, to proceed with. But I'm curious, not that I'll ask you about favorite chapter as you, as you reviewed the final draft of the book. Were there two or three ideas that you were reminded of or that you got more excited about that you would pass along to our audience as examples of the kinds of things that maybe conservatives were a little reticent in the past to embrace, but
0: we really ought to be focused on? Sure. Well, uh, in in that case, let's talk about my hobby horse, uh, which is higher ed. It's kind of an amazing thing when you you look at the condition of our universities, which is to say they are supported by the taxpayer, um, even private universities through student loans, through federal grants. And what's happening is large scale is that that money is being taken from Red America, okay, spent on making more of blue America. So we take your kids, you pay for it. Thank you very much for your uh, money. We take your kids, we teach them to, if not hate you, at least be suspicious of you, and certainly aim to, you know, undermine the country. And the right has been actually, but there are of course there are exceptions. You know, this is an interview. We can't write a book out, but broadly speaking, it's been a total failure to do anything serious about higher ed. It's, 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 kind of, it's almost breathtaking. On the systems level, for sure. Absolutely. When you look at uh, the amount of money that continues to go there, when you look at the amount of prestige that is still assigned, the, the quality of the research, um, and you see what has the right done over the past, I don't know, two generations to try and do something about it. Well. Uh, First, it was let's buy tenure lines because we'll get one conservative professor at Harvard, which, by the way, is going to make basically zero difference. Maybe in the lives of a handful of kids, so that's wonderful, but it's not going to institutionally change. Uh, We have, you know, started centers on campuses that, again, have done some good, but have done nothing to change the trajectory. We have then, you know, paid big bucks to invite big name speakers so that we can, you know, record the, the hostile Q&A and put it on YouTube and get some applause. You know, the point is we've tried all of these things. They have been largely unsuccessful. uh, And the universities keep getting worse and worse. So here is one place where I actually think that change must be done and can be done, and especially on the level of the states. Can be done by the federal government too. That would require taking away um, research grants. So I'll give you just one example. Yale University receives $500 million a year, every year, for scientific research. Now, a lot of that money also goes to just overhead. And there was a scandal at Stanford a couple of years ago where it turned out that they were charging 60% overhead. So in other words, if you get a $100,000 grant, it's not 60% of the $100,000 that goes to overhead. It's on top of the grant. So it was tens and tens of millions of dollars that were just going to maintain facilities and do whatever. That money can be taken away. It's a bold move. Uh, There will be enormous blowback. But who's to say that scientific research must be done in universities? It doesn't. It was very successfully done in government labs and corporations. There are many different alternatives that you can do to weaken that system to pay to transfer the laboratories of some of those uh, actually valuable you know academics, and there are a lot of actual valuable academics. So there are things that can absolutely be done that we have not tried, and that must be tried at some point. On the level of the states, the same thing goes. I mean, University of Florida just, I happen to know this one, receives about 300 million dollars a year from the state. Well, if Floridians are paying for that, they better have some say over it. And if the university doesn't like them having some say, take it away. Forego the money. Absolutely. Absolutely. A lot can be done. That's just, you know, scratching the surface, but that is how we ought to be thinking about it. Not because, I mean, look, I, I care about higher ed. I care about these reforms because because I love the universities, you know, at the end of the day. Uh, not as they are, but as they ought to be. The, the ideal. That's right. Which, which
1: actually we got, we were close to living out, practicing for
0: generations in this country. Right. Right. So a lot can be done to weaken them. Uh, A lot can be done if you focus on one university, If one excellent governor, say in Florida, focuses on one university. A lot can be done to force people to leave and to attract new talent in and to remake the thing in 10 years. And I advertise this as a model, this kind of hostile, semi-hostile takeover model, because everything that the right has done so far has not only not worked. The situation has gotten worse. The white papers, the sinecures, the speeches given, everything only gets worse. And so the right needs to break out of the way that it's been thinking about it. And that requires uh, us to feel that we own things. It's a kind of spiritual liberation that is required on the part of our political class, but on the part of our citizens who I think are actually closer to this already who need to feel like, no, this is my neighborhood and my university and my state. And I'm not going to just say, okay, yeah, they own the universities. Like, no, it's ours and we're going to reclaim it. I think
1: that explains the reality, the the truth of, of your observation there about Americans caring so deeply about schools, about universities, but also their hopelessness about being able to reform them about how they guide their own children and grandchildren into the right decision it explains why there was such excitement over Florida Governor DeSantis taking over New College of Florida, and and for us at Heritage, obviously we understand Governor DeSantis is a presidential candidate. This is neither an endorsement nor a non-endorsement. It's a policy conclusion. Not only do we love that particular example, we believe that is so telling for all conservative governors that I I'll, I'll be as bold as to say. A conservative governor is not successful in any state if they aren't doing something similar, because that's it's, the only way we're going to begin the process of taking back these institutions. Five, 10 years down the road, the fruit of this takeover of new college, I think, is going to be substantial, particularly if whichever man or woman succeeds the, the governor when his term is up in Florida continues this, and particularly if a second, third, or fourth conservative governor Man, we can think large here. Maybe an independent governor does the same, right? Because this doesn't have to be a conservative institution. That's right. It just needs to be a university. Yes. We share a hobby horse. Yes. Higher ed. And and so much so that I was reminded of something I read when it came out in, in the summer of 2020, I think. Your essay, Preventing Suicide by Higher Education, last paragraph. The purpose of such proposals is not punitive. You go through a lot of proposals, it is simple sense. Universities that spread poisonous doctrines no longer believe in the purpose of a university. While it is their right to disagree with this purpose, they should not be the beneficiaries of public funds. No society should be expected to subsidize its own corrosion. Yeah, we'll link to this in the show notes along with the link to the book. So the book is great. Obviously, the work that you did here at Heritage is great. But tell us about the work that you're doing at Clarkton.
0: Well, we've, you know, in a way, we've talked about it. Uh, I'm, I'm, I'm interested in the states. Uh, I think that that has, we've looked at the states as we DC conservatives, we professional conservatives have looked at the states as just, uh, backwaters, you know, uh, thinking in this magical conservative way that, ah, things are going to just work themselves out. You know, the market will work or, you know, an election will work. And so I'm interested in the states because I think that if the left controls, as I think largely they do, um, not just the federal bureaucracy, not just as we have seen and many people are surprised by, the intel state, large parts of the military, the corporate sector, large parts of the press, and they continuously want to treat us as serfs you know, obey and pay for us to rule. And take the slings and arrows relentlessly from us, telling us, telling you that, you know, you're garbage, you're this and that. The right needs to think institutionally. And that means states. That's where you have real power to actually do things. Now, here is what I will, you know, point out that we often... When we do end up thinking about things in this way, we always have solutions that I think are not going to do much. And so we should always think about the kind of laws that we want with a view to this kind of recapture. Um, Let me give just one example of this, and this is a touchy subject, and I don't mean to... uh, uh, make it a a moral issue, even though it absolutely is, but I want to make it just a political analysis issue. So look, the right invested in overturning Roe, billions of dollars, lots of time, and two generations. It got what it wanted. Good. That's a big victory. And it should have been done. So put that aside. Now, look at the dynamic in the country and how overturning it is going to change things and whether it will, let's just game it out and say that half the states will allow full abortion, half will not, but in that half, half of them will let's say you know say you can do it after six weeks after twelve weeks after et cetera uh, and the outcome will be a lot of lives saved, which is absolutely wonderful, but just put it aside for a second, if, if one can. And I, and I think it is, you know, just for a moment anyways, to suspend that. Think about what the net effect will be on the country. I mean, as I said before, I still think that you can have uh, a tyranny or something approaching a tyranny and no, and no abortion. So that I think is one of the biggest conservative victories. We invested an enormous amount into it and getting it, will not change again in this political, broad political analysis, the real dynamic in the country.
1: It actually exemplifies the problem. And, and this is coming from two ardent pro-lifers. And this is yeah, very, very grateful about the decision to say the least. And and on top of what you said, which I think is the most important point to make, the secondary point is, which is self-evident, we weren't prepared. The The political right was neither prepared for victory because we're so unaccustomed to it, nor are we prepared for the reality that this didn't change the even larger problem in in our republic. So one of the projects that you at Claremont and the Center for the American Way of Life have initiated is a database on contributions to Black Lives Matter. I think one of the most, and I mean this, uh, one of the most innovative things I've seen any organization on the right to do it in a long
0: time? Tell us about it. Thank you. Um, yes, our uh, some of our staff put this together uh, and look, the bottom line is starting uh, in the summer of 2020 uh, when George Floyd died uh, until let's say you know roughly yesterday, corporate America gave, pledged, promised or actually gave, uh, about $100 billion to, uh, let's say, broadly left-wing causes, many of which, the overwhelming majority of which are BLM-approved, $100 billion. Now, some of that money won't be given, I presume. Uh, It was a pledge because they felt that their arm was being twisted. But a lot of the money will be delivered. Now, if you think that that number is outrageous, it is outrageous, but not for the reason, uh, not because we're wrong about it. Uh, McKinsey and Company estimated that the total cash transfer, again, from the death of George Floyd until I don't know four months ago, by corporate America for BLM-style approved causes, was three hundred billion dollars. And of course, they were very proud of this. Um, so we'd like to see how they did their math. Uh, we'd be very interested uh, in knowing what what. What we didn't find. Imagine what that would cost you. Exactly, exactly. Well, we'd have to hire McKinsey. You know, <laughs> it cost exactly. us about five million dollars uh, to find that out. Uh, so the, the the number is astronomical. Um, the money did not go directly to BLM because BLM is, you know, as they call themselves, a network. Uh, about 125 million dollars went directly to them, and a lot of the other money went to various other causes, to HBCUs, to um, Uh, the ACLU to the NAACP, the bottom line is, let's just remain, even though I don't think it's good, but let's just remain agnostic on the causes uh, that it was given to. The bottom line is this um, astonishing lesson. You riot, you get the press on your side, and you will have an incredible payday. And a lot of that money just goes to maintaining that activist class. I mean, somebody has to pay for those positions, pay for those entities. Um, A lot of that money went there. Uh, Of course, nobody has been held to account. More importantly, actually, a couple of weeks ago, maybe you saw this, um, New York City is now giving payouts to people that were rioting during that period, and were arrested as, as I understand it, a kind of apology. Here's $10,000, which is a signal to them that you should do this again. And the left understands very well that this is a genuine asset on their side, mobs. We have mobs, we can take over cities, we can ratchet it up almost overnight, uh, and take over a city. And nobody will really be punished. Now it's dangerous, of course, for many reasons. They can't just turn it off, uh, but they don't really pay a price uh, for it, and they collect this insane amount of money. It's sad, yeah. And and it's it's it persists to this day,
1: a little more beneath the surface. But there are so many large cities in America, formerly like recently formerly, great cities, safe places to live. Yes, think about as we sit here. The news out of Austin, Texas, my adopted hometown, is that the chief of police resigned over what he calls police abolitionists, and it is part and parcel of the of the same movement. And this, right. this he's happened to this fellow is an acquaintance of mine, a great uh, long-serving Austin policeman who's no conservative in the way that you and I are. He's a fair man who's trying to do a good job, and and that's but one example of this problem. And 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 unfortunately. Well, we'll conclude our, conversa- our conversation with some hopefulness. On this point, in the near term, I'm fairly pessimistic. That is to say, I, I believe that there will be some cause that will ignite this nonsense again. And maybe the right is a little more prepared for it this time. But I think too few of our political leaders have the courage to muster,
0: to deal with it. Right. I th- So I, I'm, I'm also of two minds on that. Uh, I think that if the riots are based on race, which they... You know, uh, some kind of racial event takes place that, that causes them. I think that the right is going to do precisely what it did last time, which is just you know, sit there, jaw agape, and you know, do nothing. Yeah However, however, uh, that is more uh, an explanation of the sort of overly professional or professionalized right. At the same time, the states uh, don't need to permit rioting. Uh, the states have police powers that you can have peaceful assemblies. That's constitutionally guaranteed. But the moment that those assemblies turn violent begin to descend into looting, vandalism, et cetera. They can be broken up. And that already actually happened early on because if you look at you know, a geographic map, the worst of it was New York, Chicago, you know, West Coast. Not much of that took place in Florida, just to use that as an example that I think is a a shining example uh, for us. So I think that 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 will be the main thing that the right learns. And then prosecutions of wrongdoers uh, that do, that commit, that that vandalize, et cetera, whereby it becomes pretty clear that, you know, in part of the country, you can do that. And in another part, you really can't. And that geographic distribution of red and blue is already taking place, and I think it's a good thing that you know red people trapped in blue states will know that no, you can actually live in a law-abiding state and raise your family normally uh, here, and that geographic sort is taking place. And I think that it should keep going and be encouraged. It, 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 the, that trend will continue. Yes, in in every respect.
1: Two final questions, which I, I tend to ask most guests. The the first of them is for audience members who who are listening to your summary of your book, the summary of your work, your diagnosis of what's going on, which for what it's worth, I agree with entirely. What homework assignment do you want to give them? What can they do to help? That's often the question I get.
0: Well, it depends on who you're talking to. Um, I would say that, um, we should just be a little more sober about what has taken place and the dynamics. Um, This is becoming more and more a tyrannical nation, uh, very regrettably. But I don't think that it's over. And I think that we should uh, think of ourselves as, again, uh, as we did in 1776, as citizens with rights that are being impinged upon, seeking out political representation nationally, but in the states too, that looks to restore those rights. We are, you know, there are a lot of people on the right who go in various, you know, maybe interesting but somewhat wacky directions. We're Republican people. I mean, that's the kind of rhetoric that appeals to us, uh, as bad as things might get. And so with that comes this understanding that this territory, this school, this community, it is yours. And this is one of the things Again, I you know I I keep saying these you know semi-controversial things, and I I, I don't mean to because um, I, I I have you know no malice towards you know the pred- our predecessors, but I I will point out one item that you know we were the right was chased out of public schools. First went to charter schools when those started going left, and they are I mean there's no question about it. We turned to homeschooling. Now, I've met a lot of really wonderful homeschool kids who are better than any kids around, truly. But, And I also understand the parents that have been cornered into that situation. I respect it. But uh, we will not win if we are chasing to the woods. And when we look at our community schools, we should think that those are ours. These are important institutions. Absolutely. We pay for them. They're in our communities. And I think that redoing parties in states so that you know school boards are part of the governor ticket um, or however that would work would be a very important thing because new things come to mind new energy is unlocked once you see that the advantage is on your side once you have that kind of self-confidence to say no this is mine there's no way we're tolerating this and importantly it can't just be citizens on their own doing this. You know, I respect those people a great deal, especially those that are doing this now. Um, But you do need a party and a state apparatus behind you, you know, to back you up to, I mean, that's what the left has. The left has the whole country backing them up in a way, you know, institutional power. Uh, So it's easy to be courageous. The right needs that kind of power so as to uh, get what it wants.
1: In that response, I... I detected a a fair amount of hopefulness, which is usually the, 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 which I know is genuine getting to know you some. And I appreciate that, share that as well as our audience knows. So I want to ask you the question that I usually do, which is why'd you wake up hopeful this morning? You just explained it. Rather a, a version of that, which is how long if all of what you said happens or most of what you said in this conversation happens, most of whatever recommendations are in the book happens. At what point in what year do you think do we wake up and say, while we understand this republic is an ongoing project and we'll never be able to pat ourselves on the shoulder and say, we did it in the days following the American Revolution, George Washington, Alexander Hamilton didn't do that. They knew they had to go build a republic. But in what year or year span do you think that we might wake up and say, well, we're at least turning the
0: corner? I don't know, because things can actually happen very quickly under certain circumstances. You know, uh, there's this famous phrase, not that I go around uh, quoting Lenin, but like there's insight in this, that a century can happen, you know, in a minute. Um, that happens sometimes. It does. It does. Um, not that I think we're on the cusp of that and that we should sit down and, you know, quietly wait for that to happen. I don't think so. Those things, you know, are, are assisted. So I don't want to, you know, put put a timeline on it, but I do think that it, Parts of this can be implemented, you know, in the coming decade. It'll take time to build, um, but look, things can, for in, in ways that we don't foresee, get bad. I mean, just think about if the situation in Ukraine accelerates, and we're drawn in. We we we're we're of, in in this habit of thinking that you know we. We've puffed ourselves up a lot and said, like, we got the best equipment, we got the best everything, we got the best everything. Well, disasters can happen. Disasters have happened to other great civilizations from which they don't recover. Um, our puffed upness, it's not a word, but you know, I like mean, um, has led us to think that, uh, you know, the world can't reorganize against us, which is taking place right now so bad there there can be bad things that happen if we have some kind of credit crisis and the S&P goes to 2500 um or something along those lines uh things get reorganized you know uh you you start rethinking how to use your money uh what to bet on and what not and so i i think that things like that can happen but if it's if things are good and normal and calm um You know, it'll take 10, 15 years to regenerate those power sources. And I should add one last thing. Never underestimate, you know, the the left is in many ways very competent, but what they are ultimately driving at is incredible incompetence that they have not yet, that the country has not yet fully paid for. So I don't, um, I don't put it past some kind of crisis of confidence that humiliates the left to such a degree that something new can be, uh, a new direction can be tried, something can be rebuilt. arthur Millick, thanks for a wonderful conversation. Look
1: forward to many more over the years. My pleasure. Thank you very much for having me. You bet. Thanks for everything you do. Well, you, you now know why I was so excited about going into this conversation. Thanks for listening. Thanks for watching, if that's what you did. Thanks for subscribing to The Kevin Roberts Show. Do me a favor and all of us at Heritage a favor. Go out and buy this book, Up From Conservatism. The only stake that we have in it is that we have a stake in great ideas. And there are a lot of great ideas in it. Take care in the meantime. Robert Show is brought to you by more than half a million members of the Heritage Foundation. The producer is Phil Reynolds. Sound designed by Lauren Evans, Mark Guiney, and Tim Kennedy. For more information and to subscribe, please visit heritage.org.